To those who can hear me, I say, do not despair. The misery that is now upon us is but the passing of greed, the bitterness of men who fear the way of human progress. The hate of men will pass and dictators die, and the power they took from the people will return to the people. And so long as men die, liberty will never perish. Soldiers, don't give yourselves to brutes. Men who despise you, enslave you, who regiment your lives, tell you what to do, what to think, and what to feel, who drill you, diet you, treat you like cattle, use you as cannon fodder. Don't give yourselves to these unnatural men, machine men with machine minds and machine hearts. You are not machines. You are not cattle. You are men. Welcome, everybody. This is a Room Tone, the radio show, and here we are on 100.5 FM Cop Radio. I'm Ruggiero, your host, and I can't wait to head dive in today's episode because today I want everybody to raise your hands for a legend of the film industry with over 50 credits as a director in film and television. Everybody, raise your hands for Sheldon Larry. Larry, how are you doing today? I'm doing good. I'm doing good. Thank you for having me. I'm delighted to be here. It's a pleasure to have you here, and uh, it's been incredible, you know, from uh, uh, meeting at the Vancouver Chinese Film Festival and having you here travel all the way from uh, LA, and uh, uh, it's quite something. Vancouver is very happy to have you here. Now, let me ask you, how is Vancouver treating you? Vancouver treats me very well. I'm really delighted to be here. I, it's it's a beautiful week. Um, they're taking very good care of me at the film festival. I'm getting to meet a lot of filmmakers from China. Um, I'm getting to kind of take advantage of the hospitality of the city. Um, we went on a boat cruise last night we're going to Victoria tomorrow so I get to be a bit of a tourist in a city that I've shot in many times as a film director but it's really nice to be here and also I have some family here so it's very cool to see my cousin Roger and his wife and that's all delight I love the sound of that and I love the sound of uh, all these incredible events that the Vancouver Chinese Film Festival has put up together and uh, that's uh, why I want to uh, also shout out Paul Armstrong and Christine's song for making all this happen and, uh, and, and for you coming all the way over here now LA and Vancouver What's happening there? How do you feel about this and what's the difference between the two cities for you? You know, they're really, um, they really are, are extraordinary differences. I mean, as I said, I've shot here, I think I made my first film here in 1988. It was a television movie and there was no production here at all and we were interviewing crew from the CBC. That's all they had really done before to sort of watch what's happened in the last 30 years is, is really unbelievable. To have watched the city grow and mature and to watch crews gain experience and legs and, and it's combined with a, an extraordinary Canadian work ethic and a great Canadian optimism and a, a zeal and an energy. So it's always great to kind of be here. Um, and, uh, you know, Los Angeles has been very kind to me from in terms of um, my profession, in terms of work, and I've done a lot of work there. And I've also, um, I think the main reason why I became a film director many years ago, it's over 40, was because I love to travel and be a travel whore. So I get to go to different places and it's not just going as a tourist but it's getting to connect to people locally to connect to people who really live there work there have their families their dreams there and and that makes um, it, it really enriches the work that I do and give and really kind of enriches all of the experiences that I have and make it particular and I get to kind of walk into peek into really people's lives and that's what we do as filmmakers and that's what I love to do anywhere I am so Vancouver's good and it's a good place to be at a good time to be here wonderful couldn't put it better than that and uh, definitely Vancouver is growing quite fast and uh, that's why I'm so curious looking at LA and Vancouver and how everything is coming together lately now something that I'm extremely curious about is 
your trajectory as a storyteller and filmmaker, you know, throughout all these years, telling stories and connecting and, and, and in this collaborative art form. If you could share what was the moment that you were aware and became aware that you launched your career? Well, I, I, my, I, I was actually, I mean, I am Canadian. I was born in Toronto and, and went to um, high school and, and university there and um, was very interested in, in politics and political science. My degrees are actually in pol political science and French. I was thinking I might go into sort of Canadian diplomatic service, uh, but I was interested in communication and exchange of ideas. And I had a number of contacts at the CBC way back then in the late 60s, early 70s, who said if I was really serious about wanting to work in film or television that I should get out of Canada. At the time, there was no industry here. And that I should do is maybe think about going to England. A lot of the, the directors and producers working at that time in Toronto were uh, Brit expats. So I literally graduated. I went to college when I was really young. I was 15. I graduated when I was 18. Um, I wrote my last exam and packed my bags, moved to London. And it was an extraordinary time to be in London because it was London late 60s, 70s, and it was swinging London and the Beatles and Carnaby Street and there was that huge wonderful energy and momentum that 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 that, that window of, of expansion and it was a great time and I it took a while it took me a couple of months but I got my first job at the at the BBC and that turned into nine years of working there as a producer and as a director and it was a time when there was there were, were opportunities there there was uh, a new channel BBC two at that time that needed a lot of programming and uh, BBC had recently gone to color I am that old that there was actually black and white television when I started but that meant the license fees were higher so they had both money and they also had opportunity and so it was a really great time so by the time I was 19 I was actually directing my first small shows and and I learned there I was part of the general trainee scheme at the BBC and I learned about film and I learned about multi-camera um, and I think what it was always for me was a desire to um, connect and communicate and filmmakers are storytellers they they see stories they feel stories they need to share truths that they that they are that that are evident to them um, and I think what I always wanted to do was to was to keep looking at the world through different windows and then reflect on what I saw try to capture what I saw and capture not just obviously through images and sound but actually capture the the heart and the psyche and the pulse of of all of these stories so I've always and I've always been interested in what's around a corner um, and so I think that sort of um, led me to different stories and led me to kind of both keep developing and working on them 19 years old that's a great opportunity right there quite amazing and let me ask you what was happening before 19 years old in your creative self um you know i was i was i was growing up in toronto i was raised jewish um i was i had a, a family who were extremely supportive they were my mom was a designer and she played the cello and so there was some arts we were forced my brother and i to study piano which we did reluctantly um <laughs> i've recently gone back to do it again um having given it up for about 40 years um but but there was always there was respect for the arts there was this respect for creativity for learning my grandfather had been something of a rabbi and 
so um, education was sort of part of, of all of it and, and communication was all part of it and I think the desire just to, to reflect on my own life and um, you know uh, share some of that some of the stuff that I was feeling um, it, it all kind of crystallized it was and it was I think part of it Ed Broadbent, who went on to be the leader of the NDP, was actually my professor at university. Oh. This was before he got into politics. And I think the idea of sort of social change was important. You know, we're dealing with the 60s, which was a huge kind of um, sea change of, of energy and momentum in terms of um, human rights. I mean, it was women's lib, it was gay liberation, it was, um, you know, I, we were living in Canada, but there were a number of friends at university who were Vietnam vets. Uh, Vietnam draft resistors who came up to Canada, left America. So the, there was this extraordinary sort of foment of change and possibility. I mean, I am part of the Woodstock, Woodstock generation, but I think there was also the, the chance, I think we all believed at that time, something maybe that millennials don't yet have quite as much reassurance that by through our own effort, through our own change, through our own commitment and activity, we could create change in our society. And I think that that's one of the things that led me into film too. The The tenets of the BBC was were always to inform, to educate, and entertain. So yes to entertain, yes to tell a good story, to, te to learn how to tell a story well that was going to make them laugh, make them cry, make them think, uh, but never bore the hell out of them. Um, I paraphrased Noel Coward there because I actually did a, um, I knew him and uh, did a review when I first came to New New York of of his work, but the, so that was the 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 job at hand to learn how to f make film, but then it was always this idea of of educate and and inform and 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 tell stories that were going to maybe make people look a little deeper or think a little deeper. What a great concept right there too, right? It's 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 uh, talking about windows and different uh, angles of perspective, and uh, it, it seems to be that uh, with the trajectory that you had as an experienced and seasoned filmmaker and storyteller, something that really screams out of my heart that I want to ask is: after all these credits and stories and TV shows and episodes, was there one specific? show one specific episode one specific story with the crew and the people that surrounded you that was special that marked your experience as a director there's so many you know i mean i've done over 25 movies and and 500 hours of television between the bbc i mean i have such a, a wealth of, of stories i think um I, you know and and one of the great joys about this was this is that i it keeps renewing in all sorts of ways and i'm here in vancouver because um for the last three years i created a master class for chinese directors in china and produced more than 45 short films with chinese directors and what i discovered I, uh, uh, about six years ago, I did an indie film, which was a kind of passion of mine. It's a film called Leave It on the Floor, which is a gay black musical set in the, the ballroom community. Um, the ball community, people now may know it. There's a, the, 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 the kind of first cultural antecedent for all of it was a documentary called Paris is Burning that Jenny Livingston did back in 93. And at that time, I had already left London and was living in New York. I was directing theater in New York, working off Broadway. And uh, Paris is Burning started in New York showing, and it kind of 
created a window into a world that no one knew about and it was a completely kind of self-realized society with a, which which uh, which was a society of outcasts and it was um, they were all African American uh, uh, young people who had been either thrown out of their homes for being gay or had run away because of per persecution, um, who had come to the city, there were ball scenes in, and still are in major American cities, had found connection on the streets, fellowship on the streets, and basically formed family on the streets. And what's so interesting about that whole community is that it's broken into families, it's broken into houses. And, and so the idea that that your natural parents rejected you and yet you found what what is basic to everyone's need as an individual which is love and non-judgment and and support in these different in different families um, and that fascinated me the idea of creating alternative families and also What's so interesting about it is if you look at it, they're, they're, it's a community that, and we'll go too deeply into it, and, and if people are interested, they should go find Leave It on the Floor, the film which is out there on iTunes still, and, and, and uh, lots of interesting segments of it and on, on YouTube. You can even get a taste of it. But that they have these competitive balls, these events, every sort of five or six weeks, and they were in New York, Atlanta, Detroit, Los Angeles, all of the major cities. And people compete in different categories. And so you had people sort of creating new music and creating new choreography and creating new design and it was a place for a lot of transgendered people and and uh, drag queens by which you know um, people who were, were what they called butch femmes who kind of dressed up in drag who did who 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 loved doing drag as, as part of it and these things were competitive and so you had unique groundbreaking genre breaking opportunities and as I said dance choreography makeup hair wardrobe design music and and these these balls are open to the public they happen at three in the morning but they're unbelievable they're just the most extraordinary things and so going back to going back to 93 when when um, Paris is burning was released um, it's just been re-released which is interesting it's in the theaters now again in in, in Los Angeles and New York and maybe here in Vancouver um, but I would start going to these balls I'd have a show around running off Broadway and I'd go up after it because I'd start at two in the morning and just kind of bear witness to all of this energy and talent and creativity and energy and you know one of the visitors there was Madonna who had also seen Paris is Burning and was spending time was fascinated by you know the ball community and her and that was her song Vogue came out of the ball community that was her a reinterpretation of it, and she brought a lot of the, the 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 ball superstars who were actually in the video of Vogue, and so this this idea for this film, any for me, gestated from '93. I went on to do a hundred different things, uh, you know, a lot of plays in New York, a lot of films in Los Angeles, but I had this idea, you know, uh, more yeah, than 20 years ago. Thank to, you for for mentioning that and taking us through that history. You know, it's uh, I could really visualize and feel also the passion, right, and the connection that there is, and the power of the sense of community. You know, it really speaks to the sense of community and how people can come together mm -hmm. and, and through art and expression, 
really become another se- another family, another set of family. It really speaks aloud to me and resonates with me that you speak about Paris is Burning because it is my number one favorite documentary. And this is one of the documentaries that has personally inspired me on a multitude of levels and it's really nice to see this resonance. I would love to ask you about that specific documentary sure. when you saw it the first time and how did that impact you? What was the feeling that left with you? I think it was just, wow. I mean, it was, it was just... <laughs> There's this extraordinary world uh, that ha- it's like, you know, what maybe, you know, um, cultural anthropologists when they discover communities up the Amazon or living deep in the in the jungle that had no exposure to to um, Western consciousness, that it was that unique and individual. And for that time, separate and private, part of it had a lot to do with security and safety because... It was, a, it was a safe place for, um, if, you, if, you, if you've got to think about being gay, bi, transgendered, African-American at that time, 25 years ago, there were a lot of, 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 of strokes against them. I mean, in terms of, of acceptance, tolerance, and, and lack of, of, of um, attack. I mean, you know, we see transgendered people being murdered every week now. And, and the, the, there's, a, there's the consciousness of, the, of certainly North American culture has shifted to where we accepted a lot more. But at that time, it was that more, much more even outlawed, separate, and, and these balls started at 2 a.m. and they started at 2 a.m. because it was the only time that they felt it was safe to walk in the streets, that, that they wouldn't be attacked or assaulted or, or, or physically attacked. Um, so, part, so the secrecy and the separation was really about survival. And survival, I mean, I remember even when I, was, when I went back to the, to the project that those many years later and was doing research and got into the ball scene in in Los Angeles and by that time I was I, I was a parent and had twin 13 year old daughters and at two in the morning I was leaving my daughters at home to go out to the balls and I'd be coming home at seven or eight in the morning when they were done and the 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 there'd been a, a bit of a shift but there's still there's still a place for imagination and innovation and 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 these people but i remember there was one there's always emotion and drama at uh, in this world um and at one point um there were the the competition got a little ugly and there a gun was produced and suddenly everybody was on the on the floor and literally in about 10 minutes the police were there and as a middle-class white boy i thought oh fine the police have come to take care of everything but for this largely African-American uh, outsider community, for them it was as much a threat as the gun. The fact that the police were not to be trusted, they were not there to reassure them or take care of them. They were, if anything, there to suspect. And this was in, you know, the year 2012, 2013. Wow, what a so, story right there, so, And thank you for sharing that. That's quite something, that's extremely unique. And uh, it really speaks out loud also to the, to the, to the spirit that lives right in, inside the communities and that needs to get out there you know and but also also i think there's a great we, we you know we look at you know you know uh jay-z and or or beyonce that who, who who work in the mainstream media and who um are, are financially rewarded but i mean so many people it's it's these outlaws and these um outsiders and these fringe people who 
create art because they have to rather than because they're being paid to do it, who create it with no guarantee of, of financial reward or success, and many of them are struggling mm. still, and yet the need to create and the ability to create and the, the just the, the that's something that I'm mm-hmm. in awe of, you know, you know, people who are not recognized as people who continue on the fringe. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And uh, that also leads into the regenerative nature of, of creation and creating uh, for us as, as, as storytellers and creative people and I can see the pattern you know I see the pattern in you uh, in, in, in how you strive to amplify the unheard voices and I can see it even through the program that you are leading now at USC with the Chinese filmmakers and uh, how that also has led you here to Vancouver with the Vancouver Chinese Film Festival. It was such a pleasure to experience the screening with all the different films uh, with the Chinese filmmakers. I would love to hear from you uh, the trajectory and the journey of this program and how it it got implemented into USC. Um, Well, I've been teaching off and on at USC for over 10 years, and that's been, in itself, is an extraordinary experience because um, one of the things talking, I mean, the word regenerative, I mean, I'm dealing with, you know, young filmmakers who are less than half my age, who are just kind of beginning and starting. <laughs> and that's really a wonderful, energizing, regenerative thing for me. So I don't, you know, it's it's never monetary, but it is extraordinarily rewarding and, 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 and feeds my energy, feeds my creativity. And I think that, I mean, when I think that, that to some degree, art, I think it's not that there isn't a possibility of new art, but I believe that new art is is sort of a rearrangement and reprioritization of, of technique. It isn't that, you know, the Impressionists or 20th century painters, you know, did something radically different. What they did is they took what was there and they remade it through their own eyes or they reconnected it in different ways. And I think that there is a process in every one of the arts where, you know, um, 20th century music wouldn't exist, classical music wouldn't exist without 19th century romantic music. So everything grows from, adds on to, twists and turns. You can see the connection in the historical uh, trajectory again of the arts and the, the artistic taste. And well, that's pretty fascinating. You know, I, I really feel like uh, I'm, a, I'm oblivious to what, what could happen in 10 years. Where do you see the film industry in 10 years? You know, I, I, I wish I knew. <laughs> you know, one of the wonderful things is <clears throat> because... When something lands or arrives, by which I'm saying it gets some public recognition, and sometimes that's financial, then it can be kind of laid out. I, but I do think, well, I think a number of things. First of all, going back to the, the Chinese thing to kind of talk about it for a while, because it is what's brought me here, and it's one thing that's kind of occupied a lot of my energy and time for the last sort of three years. Because this is a program that... Um, Shanghai Tech University came to um, us at USC and were curious to develop some relationship with us. I mean, USC is an accepted brand in the in sort of film school world, and uh, the Chinese like brands, whether it's Gucci or Chanel <laughs> or USC School of Cinematic <laughs> Arts. And 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 we have a number of Chinese students, and and tuition is is rather exorbitant at, at USC, but they come for the brand. I mean, the the training is good, the exposure is good. They're really good filmmakers slash professors who are on the faculty and the the. 
the facility, I say to my students, it will never be as good as it is here because it's it's this extraordinary $400 million facility that state-of-the-art that George Lucas helped build and Steven Spielberg helped build. And there's the George Lucas building and the Steven Spielberg building and, and you know, and, and state-of-the-art equipment. And they, there's an extraordinary interactive school where they're doing game, game stuff. And so the training is really, really good and the facility is really, really good. But And they came... But for me, it was, I, I, again, got very excited. I mean, I've, I, I've jumped all around in my life because I like the fact that different places cause me to think differently. Being Canadian, spending time in, in London for 10 years, living in Paris for a year, living in New York for 10 years, living in LA, shooting, doing a movie in Japan and a miniseries in Russia and filming in, in, in Norway and all over England and all over Canada and all over the States and shooting in Mexico. And then when I did leave it on the floor a few years ago, the film was extremely successful in terms of, of, of international film festivals. So basically, I got to travel for a year. It was a lovely kind of gig. You go from festival to festival. <laughs> and, uh, but to watch films from different countries and watch that the storytelling was different, the dramaturgy was different, the time to tell stories were different. And so what's always excited me, it, both in the teaching even of, of, of the students at USC and in working with these are directors who, who, who work um, successfully in China who are interested in expanding their skill set as narrative filmmakers, as, as long, longer form filmmakers. And, and yet what I wanted to do, and it's what my attitude with USC students too, is, is everybody has a voice. Everybody, their voice comes from their DNA and their experience. And what I want to try to do when I function whether it's functioning as a producer on somebody else's film, or I, I've also been lucky enough to have been the producing director on a television series where I've gotten to hire directors and then you know, help the directors to kind of find their own way through a film, through the film episodes, and sometimes they get they, they paint themselves into corners or get stuck or run out of time or and so to help them through but it's really trying to respect their voice and so when this opportunity happened in China I thought as I said wow Shanghai why not I haven't spent too much time in Asia um, and but also it was that it was to get an opportunity to kind of get into their heads as storytellers and what could I do what could I teach them about telling stories and, um, and, 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 and help them build their skill set. And it, it was extraordinary. It was really interesting, first of all, to find the, the, the first years they had to develop. We developed a screenplay with them. And then I took them into working with actors in different ways and how, to, how we cast actors and kind of gave them... The, the Chinese are very good at patterns if you give them a pattern mm. give you, or oh, you give you, them a model. patterns well patterns by which you're saying you give them a mold and then they can make something wow very interesting so is that what you think what would you, what would you believe is the the trait of the student who will then be successful in the film well, industry? I, I think that one of the things that 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 the Chinese are and I mean China has changed so much in the last 40 years I mean it it's it, I, I was watching some short documentaries because I'm on the, the the jury for the the Chinese Film Festival today and every one of these films were were made in China these were the docs short documentaries but they were all about 
often older people, middle-aged people who were dealing with them, the, the momentous change in society from what it was like when they were children to now. Because, you know, we, 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 you know, you go there and the infrastructure is brand new and that's because it didn't exist before 1980 and when they started building in 1990. So these, these bullet trains, these fast trains that can get you anywhere, have all been built within the last 30 years. Uh, we, we shot in a city called Hangzhou, which is about 200 miles from, from uh, Shanghai, and you get there in an hour and a half. And they're building nine subway lines simultaneously in Hangzhou right now, all of which are going to be ready by 2021. Wow. So there's no... And it's interesting, I made the parallel even with Canada, is that Canada didn't have a film industry until the late 80s. And so the, 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 the technology here is very new. One reason why the Canadian film industry has expanded in a way is that all of the equipment is brand new and people lo learned on the newest generations of equipment and the effects and things like that. I mean, where, where the, you, you didn't have the weight of a past or a weight of a history. And that's what China is. But the thing that, that for them as storytellers and, and the one thing that I think they love American film. They have, because they're all about replicating, they have not, they don't yet know to trust their own voices that the, the way that you can't, you know, you make one iPhone, you can make, you know, 50 million iPhones because the components are the same. You make one successful film, you can't make 50 million successful films using the same sort of model. What a strong point that you have right there. And, and it really is also um, brings me back to the screening that we had, you know, looking at how these cultures are coming together and feeling uh, a little bit of that American taste and, and it's tapping into the Chinese stories. Well, let me, and, uh, let me one thing which yeah. is interesting that 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 um, basic American film has is 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 driven by one thing and that's basically the central character wants something hmm. he wants to do something and he therefore is committed to action whether it's going to the moon or saving the the planet from aliens or hmm. you know getting a date with the girl that he loves he's committed to that action and in being committed to the action he does something and the the action that he does has consequences and then he must deal with the consequences either good or bad you know the the desire to rid the planet of aliens can either lead to an alien invasion <laughs> and put him into into you know, the bottom and then fight back or could lead to other things and so but this whole idea is of want want to something want to do something to be active is a concept that i think is new to the chinese because for the longest time they didn't feel that they that they could be successful at what they did. And so, but once you, I began to sort of empower the, the Chinese filmmakers, and the best example I can give you is actually the, the first film that we showed in this, in, in um, the program. It's a movie called Killer Smile. It's about a mother who has a child who has a baby who smiles and and causes people to die. <laughs> yeah, right? the first moment I saw that, that was quite a, what a genius idea, and it really goes down to the premise for short films somehow, huh? But is, it, is there, a, is there a, something I would love to ask you actually about those yeah. screenings and, and, and what you talked about earlier, the, the, the directionality of the story and the main character. Do you think things are gonna change? Do you believe there are other ways we can tell stories effectively? I think that the, that the, the look, I, I think that, you know, I, I'm, I remember, 
I loved being in Morocco and being in Marrakesh and in the main square in Marrakesh where they're selling everything they have to sell and their dentist pulling teeth. Some of the biggest draws are the storytellers and they're just people who are sitting there in the main square and people are telling stories. We want stories. We want to, we want to be seen and felt. So that I think that the core element of story, which is an, an emotional engagement, which makes us feel a little more human. As I said before, it makes us laugh, it makes us cry, it makes us think. I mean, if you can make somebody laugh, you're grateful. We, we, we love those comedic mm-hmm. storytellers. If you can make somebody cry, we're, we're addicted to those storytellers. But uh, let me just finish the, quickly that other story. Of course, of course. Killer Smile. So the, that film, when the filmmaker woman came and she said, I want to make a film about a baby who kills people. Uh, who smiles and kills people. And I said, that's fine, but the baby has no agency, by which I mean the child doesn't choose, I don't like how the, that person looks, so I'm going to kill them. The baby smiles, kills, smiles, kills. There's no movie there. And I said, what if it's a mother who has a child who, do, who does mm. it? So then, because what the mother wants to do is to protect her child, love her child, be with the child. The, the child, I mean, people don't know the film, but it's a, so it's a mother who will go to any lengths to protect this child. And when you think about it, you know, we've just had these hideous shootings in El Paso and, and, and Dayton, Ohio. You know, we, we, we brand the, 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 the shooters as these monsters, and indeed monsters they are. But these monsters have parents. And, and so I think there had actually been a, a, a shooting in, in, in Los Angeles fairly recently when we started it. And I said, what about thinking about what are those parents going through? You know, what is it like to have this child? It's great if you have somebody who wins the Nobel Prize, a child, but it's what, what is that like? So that's a very human story. That's, and, 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 and so taking, that's part of the journey, getting them, getting them to see characters that have agency, that want to do something, and that's something that I think everybody relates to. So the sense of agency is uh, quite a necessity to, to actually make storytelling happen, uh, seems from the point. I would love uh, to explore the concept of uh, telling a story of an inanimate object. Do you think that would ever be possible? I, I, I think it would, but I think that you, you're going to need to engage your audience. You know, I think uh, on the journey, if it's if it's an inanimate object who wants to become animate or wants to kind of, you know, be human or thinks that he's human or, you know, um, I, I, I think that I think that we can be I think we're fascinated by image and by, by and I think one of the great things and, and, and I, I think it's certainly true, the, the, the filmmakers in the Chinese program, they are really masterful filmmakers. I mean, they're really good at knowing the, the, the power an image can have, where you put a camera, what lens you use, how you light an image. There's an, there's an emotional impact of all of those things. And I think that we can, I maintain it's for, you can, you can do a story of a, of a, Like a commercial works for 30 seconds, but a commercial, even commercial actors, there, there, there needs to be a, a, there needs to be a desire. We need to either root for the inanimate object, or we need to root against the inanimate object. The inanimate object either wants to take over the world or become human, or um, you know, destroy the world, and then we, we, we are going to have a visceral response. One of the things that I feel. I, 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 
with my directors and, and the Chinese program, and I do it at USC as well, I, I make them act. I make them actually get on their feet and f and really investigate what it is to act, and what and therefore what it is to want. You want something. You want to achieve something. So I think we can be we can be dazzled and intrigued and emotionally engaged by a, an extraordinarily attractive inanimate object. But what's going to keep us watching? That's the question. Wonderful, wonderfully put right there. What a strong combination of, of words. It's, it got me thinking quite a lot because it's uh, inanimate objects have always fascinated me, you know. How can, can we as storytellers create an environment that, that leads to cheer for that inanimate object, and that—that that is really the the, the 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 biggest question I think that that uh, any director could could ask about well, the sense of agency. It's also got to be uh, an inanimate object in an environment which, to some degree, is is hostile to it. We talk about uh, so an environment. You so you, you can't an inanimate object in limbo. You know, you can. You know, we know there are black holes in the universe, and they <laughs> exist. But there are black holes, and then what do you do when you get in a black hole? Mm -hmm. You just kind of. That, it's, it's that's it. Um, I was I was delighted enough. I mean, I had a lot of really talented film students go through USC, and and and. Um, but I was actually mentor to to uh, probably the, the the poster child for USC, the best known director. He's a director called Ryan Coogler, who directed Black Panther and before that Creed and before that Fruitvale. And I was his mentor on his senior project, and it was the basically the premise was a. A mother with a single child who had been a prostitute who had no food in her in her um, kitchen to feed the child. So you've got an, a mother and a child in a hostile environment. The mother must do something, and the only thing she knows to do is to go back to, to prostitution. So immediately, so what I'm saying basically is, is that the inanimate object, going back to your idea, has to be in an environment which to some degree is in odds with it. Is that every other an, an, inanimate object is, you know, winning the Nobel Prize except him, then he wants to win the Nobel Prize. Or every so other. much uh, juice and substance in this conversation, and we're actually going to have to take a break. Okay. It's been over half an hour here, and it's been a pleasure talking with you, Sheldon. We're going to take a little break here on Room Tone, the radio show, or listening on 100.5 FM Cop Radio. We're going to catch up and uh, continue and finish the conversation right after the break. Uh, and the soundtrack of, of course, your film, Live It on the Floor, uh, by Kim Burse and Frank Getson. So everybody enjoy, and I'll catch you in a few minutes. Ciao, ciao. Thanks. Welcome back. 
Welcome back, everybody. This is Room Tone, the radio show. I'm Roger, your host, and it's a pleasure to be here in the booth at Cop Radio 100.5 FM, downtown inside Vancouver, with the legendary director Sheldon Larry. Sheldon, how did you enjoy that track, Live It on the Floor, your soundtrack right there? Well, it's always a joy to hear that music. I mean, it's so joyful and fun and original and talented, and um, it, it just brings me back to an extraordinary collaboration where I, I, we didn't have a lot of money to make the film. A lot of USC students were with me on the film the the these extraordinary talents Kim Burst and Frank Gatson who are legendary and in the industry got involved because they wanted to give back to a place that had actually inspired them so hearing that music always takes me back to a lot of wonderful fond memories and, love it and love enjoy it the film and this is time actually for the one minute pitch here we just uh, dedicate one minute to pitch any project any idea any concept that you want to visualize, you want to see, you want to bring to reality here in the world. So I'm going to hit that clock and you have one minute. Are you ready? Okay. Let's do it. Three, two, one, hitting that clock now. Okay. Well, um, I have many things I want to pitch, but actually two projects that I'm actually involved with now that I'm developing. Uh, one actually kind of steps out from Leave It on the Floor. Um, there is actually in Los Angeles a men's correction center, the, the, the male prison, and there is actually a gay segment of it and so the whole idea was basically in in brief it's sort of orange is the new gay basically it's an extraordinary community and and an un, again an unknown community to the world and it's really interesting to do it so that's one thing i'm also developing a a, a kind of black mirror future that of a film that came from uh the 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 chinese program and and uh, one of my students at usc and it's a it's a future world it's uh science fiction and it's a world in which ai rules the world world and AI basically t is in charge of everything and uh, one has very little humans have very little to do the lead functions as a sex worker and he tries to get out and that's one minute perfect spot on right there I can tell that's not the first time you've pitched at all <laughs> well, no 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 I mean we, we, we even train our students at USC to do what we call elevator pitch and elevator pitches which is supposed to be you know when you're if you're trying to follow a, 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 an executive out your meetings over but you've got to desperately get in one last pitch so you've got to get the pitch out in the time it takes him to walk from the office to the elevator and the elevator door is closed so it's, 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 it's uh, similar to the one did that ever pitch. happen to you yeah yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> Absolutely, absolutely. Wow. You're always. I mean, I I did a television series, um, actually called Beggars and Choosers, which was about the television business. In which the idea of the television series was, the the um, the choosers are the the studio executives, the network executives. They get to choose. We're going to make this. We're not going to make that. We're going to do this. We want to do this. We want to work with this actor, not with that actor. So they are the choosers, and everybody else is the beggar. Mm. So you're constantly begging to sell, to pitch, to please please hire me please please develop this please please pick up my pilot do you believe please that there will be a place where filmmakers will be able to keep their own creative freedom and finance their own films I think one of the things and this is another joy of USC and and even with the Chinese directors is that the technology has so changed it's changed look I was working in 35 mil film and two inch videotape when I started in the business you know 40 more than 40 years ago the, the fact that you can now shoot a film on a single lens reflex camera and that basically there is an extraordinary amount of talent you know front of camera and behind camera um, I see it all the time even on low budget films that I'm involved with that I think that 
it's no cost is no longer prohibitive and i think where because cost is no longer prohibitive and because there is a huge interesting generation that are making films on their iphones that are are kind of doing instagram stories that i think that that really that that film the film industry has been democratized so yes there will always be the commercial big budget movie that will be released that will be made for 500 million dollars and released and, and and make a fortune but i think it's already here i think the future is here i think there's nothing stopping anybody with an idea uh, with a script with a passion and with just the work ethic of making the films and there are film festivals to put them out and there are streaming services to put them out and there are there are places that will do it i mean these chinese films my usc students make films all the time there are there are first look festivals there are places to go. I mean, it becomes as hard a job to get them out, to get them onto a platform, to be seen as it does to get them made. But, but yeah. But and I also think that look at YouTube. Look at what we can see on YouTube. Look at if if we, we become. So I think we're here. We're here. But I think that that so there's no excuse. There's no excuse for anybody out there who wants to make a movie. Get out and get off your asses and do it. You guys heard it out there. No excuse whatsoever. It's time to make it happen and get and get your hearts out too. You know, authenticity is what's valued at the end of the day and totally. uh, I can definitely see that uh, uh, fueling many of the artistic uh, minds here in the 21st century you know so much to talk about I think the main thing that everybody has to kind of check themselves on with two things one is and I find you know young filmmakers at USC and and is that people will lapse into a trope by which I'm saying they'll go into a kind of filmmaking convention of how to resolve a moment in a script and I think one of the things that as you're developing it as you're really working on the script and that whole idea that uh, uh, that even with 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 the Chinese for them that you you get to rewrite all of the time and what you need to do is check on yourself stay away from the easy simple solution stay away from the easy convention stay away from the cliched character or the cliched story moment um, Find find your own new way. It may not be new, but it may be original. It may be surprising. That's what I'm saying. And I think that's what's really important. And challenge yourself. One of the things that I find with young filmmakers, and I applaud their energy, they can become a little bit obsessive about, this is my vision and this is my story and it has to be this way. And one of the things that I, 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 I talk about young filmmakers and it's my own advice too is that if I wanted just to um, create alone I would write books or or paint paintings um, the fact that filmmaking is collaborative and the great joy is that you do need other people and that you can be kind of eclectically creative and that basically you get to choose people to go along with you in terms of your own vision and that they bring a taste a sensibility and a, a creativity to it so an extraordinary prop master can bring an extraordinary kind of new vision a, a production designer a cinematographer certainly your editor and and uh, there was a uh, 19th century uh, British Prime Minister called Benjamin Disraeli who um, had this line that that resonates to me and I almost tell every group of young filmmakers as your leader I will follow you anywhere and so the idea of creating a, a benign environment in which people feel comfortable enough to speak to try to do um, it's it's creating a safe place for people to experiment um, I, I, 
I attempt to do that with all of the actors that I work with. And that's and that moment-to-moment work that you do is what surprises and refreshes and, and, and energizes an audience. Because you don't want to repeat moments that people have seen before. You want to kind of startle them by something that, 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 that hits. So I really encourage those of you to do it and to realize that a film is completed by the people viewing it finally. You may have the vision, you may want to tell the story, but ultimately the story belongs to them. And that's the final, that's the final, uh, one of the final steps of the film and really connect with the audience because without an audience there is no such thing as a story. That's where the film can really become a mirror. And that's why we were talking about it earlier. Uh, experiencing the film and sitting down with the film becomes the ultimate gesture of kindness and courage, you know, whatever you bounce on the screen, then then the film does the privilege of bouncing it back at you and you can catch whatever you need to catch. And as a filmmaker, you also have to be a little bit of a philosopher. And that's where I want to ask you for you being also a little bit of a philosopher that has to crystallize and solidify and explore the conceptual realities of your characters in your films. Has there been one character you will never forget in one of in all of your stories and films you've been telling? What's the one character that has kept you there with the, the most? Wow. Um, I don't know. There are a lot that engage. I mean, I've been really lucky. I mean, and, you know, I mean, uh, comedy, Bradley Cooper created a character that I remember. Jenna Rollins, the extraordinary actress who worked for John, John Cavett's wife, created an extraordinary character. Um, just off the top of my head, the thing that just popped in when I said it was I did an adaptation of an Alexander Solzhenitsyn novel that we shot in Russia. And there was a there was a character of um, the wife of the anti-hero, the, the guy who ultimately at the end is sent, who, who refuses to compromise to Stalin's um, Russia and is sent off to the gulag. And the, the, the role of his wife, who... The, her husband's in pri- been in prison for 20 years. She has limited uh, opportunity to see him. She has to carry on with her life. And the idea that she she loves, she understands, she's an extremely bright character. She's a character who embraces her reality and yet is never defeated by it. And the final image of the film is ironic because the the, her husband, unknown to her, is being led off in a meat wa- wagon, where basically the, all the nothing's closed, and they just pass each other in the in the middle of Red Square, um, and and she she doesn't know what's going on. We know, oh my God, her husband is going, and yet she's not going to be deterred. We know that her, her she's going to keep growing, she's going to keep struggling, she's going to keep trying, she's going to the love and the care and the respect is she's going to carry forward. Life is a journey, um, keeping your sense of humor, keeping your wit, keeping your sense of constant need and desire to keep trying, keep getting out there. I think that's something that resonates for me. Mm-hmm. Some tasty, tasty um, conversations right there. And we're actually getting and reaching the end of this whole episode. So we're here and we got to go through the Proust questionnaire. Okay. Are you ready? We're going to go and pick five questions randomly out of the Proust questionnaire and get to explore a little bit more of what it means to be like Sheldon Larry. Okay. okay. So first question of the Proust questionnaire for Sheldon. What is your idea of perfect happiness? Um, perfect happiness is being present. Um, perfect happiness is not thinking about what else could be, what other things could be, where you, what you could have with not. It's absolutely embracing the moment that you're in. And 
and and and just realizing how lucky to be breathing how lucky to be feeling the sun or feeling the rain how lucky to be sharing this moment with who are, who are you doing it whether it's a friend whether it's not a friend whether it's a creative partner whether it's somebody that you're sitting on the on a bus or a subway with but it's of just allowing yourself to be completely present i love it we're gonna have to keep the tempo up okay. and keep going and here right. is the second question of the proof questionnaire for sheldon what is your greatest fear um I think my greatest fear is, you know, my daughter's hitting some health hazard. I mean, I, I think that I have these two extraordinary 26-year-old daughters, and one's a doctor, one's a nurse. And, you know, the, the, the idea of creation is kind of pushing into the future, pushing into the unknown. So, yeah, something would happen to them. I mean, I'm old, so whatever happens to me happens to me. But, mm. but yeah. I think Thank you for sharing that, Sheldon. That was, sure. uh, that was uh, quite something. That, and that's leading to the third question of the Proust questionnaire. What is your greatest extravagance? Uh, my greatest extravagance? <laughs> um, I, I, you know, I think um, going, going to London and going to the theater twice a day and, you know, um, or going to New York and, and going to the theater, I mean, paying ridiculous Broadway prices, but, but it's not an extravagance. It's, it's the kind of bread and butter or, or kind of it feeds my soul in such ways that so spending that ridiculous, those ridiculous amounts of money certainly are rewarding. Feeding the soul is number one priority, you know, uh, not the man who, uh, who uh, becomes the king of the world, but the one who becomes the king of his soul. That's mm -hmm. the game right there. Right, I right. love it. Fourth question of the Proust questionnaire. Okay. If you were to die and come back as a person or a thing, what would it be? Oh, my God. I have no <laughs> idea on this. Who would I come back as? Um, I don't know. Maybe I'd come back as myself, but come back as myself with the knowledge and failures and frustrations and you know experience that I've had so wouldn't it be interesting to start again as you knowing what not to do and also maybe what what opportunities to seize and embrace wonderful and that now leads to the last question of the Proust questionnaire what historical figure do you most identify with oh god I don't know <laughs> you know I mean I studied history what historical figure um Oh, Follow the heart, man. Let it out. The heart I, is speaking. You know, no, no. It's really kind of interesting. <laughs> I, it, it, you know, I can't even kind of think of it. I, I mean, it's sort of like um, any... I, I mean, I know that there's one. I mean, people who believe and who have worked for to create a better world, a better life, a better kind of future for themselves, future for their families, future for their countries. I, you know, it's funny. There's nobody... I, you know, I don't know. I, I don't know. I don't know. Interesting. Well, then uh, that's going to lead to the sixth question okay, of the Proust right. questionnaire. And uh, this, is a, this is a wonderful way to wrap up the whole episode. When and where were you happiest? Um, I, you know, I, I, I've had such extraordinary joy in my life. I mean, I'm happy now. I'm happy when my daughters were born and being in the delivery room when they happened. I'm happy when I got nominated for awards. I'm happy when I won awards. I'm happy when, you know, I, I visited a new city. I mean, going to Rome for the first time was extraordinary. Going to, to London, arriving in London was extraordinary. Um, being, I mean, I think, I think I'm all the happiest when I can be present, when I can be kind of there and to really 
you know, one reason why I love travel is just new experience. I think I'm, I'm, I'm a whore for that, those experiences. So I'm always happy. I'm happy right now. I'm happy having this conversation. And thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure, Sheldon. You know, it's, uh, it's now been an hour of conversation here on Room Tone, the radio show. And uh, here we are. You're listening on 100.5 FM Cop Radio or actually on our website on roomtonetheradioshow.com on our podcast. We're going to make sure that we add all the links and a few pictures in the description of the, this podcast. And uh, Sheldon, before we wrap it up with the soundtrack of your film Living on the Floor, what's your piece of advice for filmmakers out there? Um, listen to your heart and get off your asses. <laughs> I love it. What a wonderful way to wrap this whole burrito up. <laughs> Sheldon, I extend a big hug to you Thank and you. I extend a big hug to all the listeners out there. Uh, you know, we eat emotions, we drink energy and we breathe stories. Enjoy life. Catch you next week. I'm Ruggiero. Ciao, ciao. Thanks, Ruggiero.